Okay, um, open up your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. And uh, this is also Deuteronomy 5, 7, but we're going to look at Exodus 20, verse 3. Our message today is called Trash the Idols, which is uh, part of the command here that we're called to do, as we'll see. Exodus 20, verse 3, let's read that and then I'll pray. These are the words of God. You shall have no other gods before me. Let's pray. Our Father and God, we thank you for what you are doing here among us at Cross and Crown. We are grateful for your word and your spirit. May we trash the idols in our hearts and burn the idols in the town square. We know that this requires faith and preaching, diligence and steadfastness. So would you help us with both and with all of those things. In Christ's name I pray, amen. So uh, by way of reminder from our introduction of the Ten Commandments last week, just to kind of give you a quick refresher, I made the case that the circumstances surrounding the giving of the commandments, and that's coupled with the case laws that follow the book of, uh, uh, that follow chapter 20, um, after the giving of the Ten Commandments, the circumstances surrounding the giving of the commandments is set forth in the context of grace. So don't miss that point. Because Yahweh rescued his son Israel from slavery, that is an act of redemptive love and grace and mercy, the son is now, based on gratitude and a circumcised heart, to act like dad. That's the situation of the the surrounding circumstances of the Ten Commandments. Father Yahweh has rescued his son Israel, that's from Exodus 4, And uh, now the son is supposed to act like dad. He's supposed to be like his father. So appreciation for the father's kind redemption is the mark of covenant loyalty. I'll say that again. Appreciation for the father's kind redemption is the mark of covenant loyalty. That's the same principle we find in the Old Testament. It's the same principle we find in the New Testament. While we do differentiate between law and grace, we need to remember that they work together. They don't do each other's jobs, but they work in concert, accomplishing God's sovereign plan. The giving of the ten words is a father-son sit-down talk about maturity. That's what we talked about last week. The giving of the ten commandments, the ten words, is a father sitting down with his son just having a sit-down correction moment, you are in need of maturity. So this is what maturity is going to look like. It's all about sanctification. It's about holiness. It's about obedience and gratitude for the covenant relationship. If Israel the Son is able to embrace the grace of God and believe on the promises of God, he will emerge as a new creature, a new creation. Of course, as we saw last week, this ultimately, we know, points to Jesus, who is the true son, the true Israelite, and he's the second Adam, and he himself embodies the ten words, the ten commandments, as the creator word incarnate. So just know that the ten words can't be isolated from Jesus. Jesus is the ten words. He has come in obedience to the Father. He has uh, incarnated the word of God. Um, He is the one who embodies those words. Now, it is his act, it's Christ's act of new creation redemption that brought all of us out of Egyptian slavery, what we call sin. You think of in the book of Revelation, people get mixed up on this. 
uh, especially chapters 18 and 19. But in Revelation, you have Jerusalem being called Babylon. And there's often in the prophets would, would do that. It was actually a mark of, uh, well, it wasn't a pleasant mark, remark. We, uh, I like to affectionately call it Washington, D.C. Aside from calling it the District of Communism, I like calling it Babylon because Babylon is viewed in Scripture as this high and mighty wishes it could be God thing. And Jerusalem had become like that, and Chris referenced that with the beast of Revelation. Uh, Rome and Babylon were working together against the saints, and that's what you have in, in the book of Revelation. So, it is Christ's Holy Spirit that installs and implants the ten words on our hearts through regeneration so that we might go forth into the world heralding the gospel of the kingdom and proclaiming the liberating standards of our Father. So that's just kind of a recap of, of last week. So let's look at our text here, Exodus chapter 20, verse 3. Now keep in mind that the lead-in to the ten words, what we covered last week, sets the mood for the rest of the passage. Because the warrior father rescued his son, there are certain requirements that are in order if they're going to reflect him properly. So God brought them out of slavery in Egypt, set them in before his holiness at the Mount Sinai where the Ten Commandments were given. There are certain requirements that are there if the son is going to act like the father, to reflect the father. Think of it as Adam and Eve were made in the image of God. They sinned. That image was defaced. And now this is what it looks like to have that image restored. It looks like redemption. It looks like grace. It looks like obedience to God and his word. So the first command is thus presented in that, in that context, and it is the one that leads the way to the rest. There's a reason why this one is the first of the Ten Commandments, and that is, you shall have no other gods before me. Because, think of it this way, the tone matters as much as you can read tone on paper, but based on the fact that God is the suzerain, he's the conquering king, and Israel is the newly acquired vassal, that, that's the, the conquered nation, if you will, God issues his commanding orders. So we don't have a set of recommendations here. You know, I recommend that maybe you guys, I don't know, if you get around to it, maybe could you, could you kind of just repent of some things? You know, there's no, there's no set of recommendations. It's, there's no negotiations here. You know, if you do this, then I'll do this sort of thing. There's no if-then statements in the Ten Commandments here. There are if-then statements at the end of Deuteronomy with covenant sanctions where God says, if you don't obey me, this is what I'll do to judge you. So we have that. But here in the Ten Commandments, there's no recommendations. There's no negotiations. It's not a democracy. It's not a democracy. God's not holding an election to sort things out by the will of the people here. Nor is God taking suggestions out of suggestion box. <laughs> As if there was a suggestion box attached to the outer wall of the tabernacle. No, God is not doing of that. In fact, God says you will not have other gods. If you want to feel the strength of the first commandment, essentially that's what Yahweh is saying. You will not have other gods. If you're my son, you will not do that. Now, he's not asking for counsel either or wisdom on how to proceed, as though he just barely mustered up the strength to rescue them, and God's quite tired now, and now he has to figure out the next step. 
God does not need advice. Isaiah 46.10 says, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. God is sovereign, not man. Now the command here, the first commandment, is a command of exclusivity. God rules out every kind of idolatry known to men. If it's not worship and service of, the, of Yahweh, it is forbidden. And be it humanism or atheism or even nihilism, God rules out idolatry in every respect. The phrase used here is, of course, very interesting, particularly the word before. You shall have no other gods before me. In Hebrew, it really means, literally, it's in my presence, as in no gods are permitted to be in the presence of God. Um, none shall be, you could even take it a, another nuance, none shall be before my face. Coram Deo, before the face of God. Now, you, you should ask the question, well, where is the presence of God? And if you were back then at Mount Sinai and you were a, a newly rescued Israelite, a Hebrew, where is the presence of God? You would have not hesitated to answer that question. Well, the, the presence of God is at the tabernacle. That's where God is present. He led us in a pillar of smoke and, 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 and fire. That's where God is located. And yes, that's a true statement. Later on, after the temple was built in Jerusalem, uh, David wanted to build the temple. Solomon ended up building it. God took up his presence in the temple. So yes, that all, that's all true. But there's something else at play. Where is God present? Well, the answer is everywhere. Even Solomon acknowledged that God could not be contained in buildings made by human hands. That's why I sort of laugh about you know, phraseology that churches will use. Well, this is God's house, as if God is only present there in their house and isn't present in Afghanistan in caves where Christians are trying to stay alive. So the language, though, is that the whole universe is God's house. That's really what we learn from the rest of Scripture. So in Hebrew... We have seven words that literally mean this. There shall not be for you another God before my face. That's the first commandment. This is not primarily about order and supremacy, though that's part of the equation. It's actually about proximity. It's about proximity. No other gods are to occupy the space in which Yahweh exists, which is everywhere. There, there are no gods that are permitted to exist in the universe that Christ, that Christ has made by the word of his, of his mouth. The first commandment rules out the making of other gods, other idols, which is, we'll talk some more about this next week in the second commandment. But there is no religious freedom clause as we know it today in the first, first amendment. No, a lot of Christians will pump up the first amendment like it's a good thing. Well, religious freedom, you know, well, Muslims can worship their God too and freedom. Okay, but God does not believe in religious freedom. <laughs> God does not believe in religious freedom. He, he believes in no other gods before him. That's the first commandment. So God does not deal in terms of secularism or pluralism, where multiple gods are permitted to exist in a society. He doesn't, he doesn't deal in those terms. Men are not free to worship whomever and whatever they choose. Neither can you add God to the other gods you're lugging along. Life in God's world is not a la carte, where you just pick and choose your religious things, you know, sort of Oprah Christianity, Oprianity, I like to call it. Oh, we're all just feeling our way around. We all worship the same God in the end anyway. No, that's not true. 
And of course, and then it's like, well, as long as you're sincere about it, you know, sincerity is the mark of truth. You know, if you're sincerely worshiping your version of God, then it must be true for you, and therefore we can accept it. Nonsense. No, God has drawn a line in the sand. No gods are permitted anywhere. The first commandment means that every sin can be traced back to a betrayal of God. Every sin can be traced all the way back to a betrayal of God, a violation of this particular command. R.C. Sproul has famously said, the sin is cosmic treason. It's cosmic treason. It's treasonous behavior, seditious behavior against Yahweh, against God, the triune God, who has not permitted other gods to exist. Uh, Thomas Aquinas said this, he said, Now the end of human life in society is God. Consequently, it was necessary for the precepts, precepts of the Decalogue, first of all, to direct man to God, since the contrary to this is most grievous. That was Aquinas. In other words, to break this commandment is to commit the most egregious sin possible. Now, if you want to be a free person, if you truly want to be a free person, then you have to do things God's way, then do things God's way. If you want to rebel against the Creator, you'll always start here. You'll always start with the breaking of the first commandment. Um, think of it this way in terms of like Christian theology. The first commandment is actually about faith. It's a trust in the exclusive claims of God. To obey the first commandment is to be placed inside the loving authority of Yahweh. To disobey the first commandment is to become a slave to idols. So there's no neutrality here. You don't get to pick your God and, and do whatever you want. No other gods. It is God and God alone. Think about that for presuppositional apologetics. Everybody worships a God. Everybody thinks everybody gets to choose their God. But the reality is we're not permitted to do that. Now, before we sort of zoom out and apply this passage, I want to take us through a very brief review of the biblical position regarding false gods and idols. What does the Bible tell us about false gods and idols? Now, idolatry itself is actually rather paradoxical. Idolatry itself is paradoxical, and I'll explain what I mean here in a second. Consider first their power or lack thereof. On the one hand, there are false gods that when compared to Yahweh, the true God, they're repeatedly said to be powerless. They're repeatedly mocked. Uh, Andy read Psalm 115, which is actually a psalm of mockery. You make a god, you become a moron. As, that's my translation. You, you, you become just like it. Uh, G.K. Beale said famously, you become like what you worship. Uh, I think his book title is named after that, if I'm not mistaken. You become like what you worship. So the Bible says on the one hand that when you consider the power of the false gods and the, the Molechs and the Baals and all these false gods, they're really powerless. They, they, they're powerless when compared to God and, 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 and Yahweh. And that's because God has no real rivals. But, well, let me say it this way, when it's juxtaposed with God, idols are nothing. Idols are nothing. Yet, they are clearly something when it comes to power. We humans can erect an, an idol in our hearts as quickly and naturally as we do breathing. Calvin has famously said the human heart is a factory of idols. We, so they're powerless when compared to God, but yet we can put one up in our hearts in a split second 
as easy as it is breathing. So on the one hand, they're powerless. When contrasted with Yahweh, they're inanimate, they're impotent. But on the other hand, they're powerful enough to destroy us. They're powerful enough to destroy us. Another paradox pertains to their actual existence or not. You know, is Baal or Moloch, you know, my position is I preached a, a chapel message in, in Yahweh, or in Yahweh, in Zambia, um, how Yahweh is uh, always rivaled against these gods like Baal and Moloch. And Moloch is really the, the state when it comes down to it. It's the collectivist system, as we'll get to in a second. But... Um, when, when I was preaching that in Zambia, it was interesting there at the university because, uh, you know, a lot of them had never heard that type of talk before. Um, you know, newsflash, there's more to Christianity than just be nice, <laughs> which isn't really a principle anyway. Um, but Moloch, all these gods are out there, so the question is, well, do they exist or not? We know that idols and false gods are nothing in and of themselves. They have no real ontology or being it's not like you can drive through um, Marshall here and, oh, there's Molech walking down the street. It's not that they exist really in, in the sense that, well, God has all these rival gods and sort of like Godzilla versus all the monsters. You can tell what the Garwood boys were watching this weekend. Um, but it's not like that. It's not that Yahweh's here and there's unfortunately accidentally a bunch of gods that are walking around. There's no being in and of themselves. However, we know from places like Psalm 115 that we humans have the ability to create them. And not only do we create them, we give them power over us because of it. And this is because idols are mirrors. Idols are mirrors. They are projections of our own sin and longing for something other than God. So which is it? They don't exist or they do exist. Which is it? The answer, the biblical answer is yes. Yes. We'll come back to this. Now, that was an amen, I think, from the dog. The root of idolatry, when you consider idolatry, the root of idolatry is a contemptuous rejection of the godness of God. If you had to define idolatry, that, I think that's a good definition. It's a contemptuous rejection of the godness of God. It's, it's like atheism. You know, there are two principles of atheism. Um, this has been stated uh, repeatedly, but, you know, there is no God and I hate him. Um, that's, those are the principles of atheism. You're so angry about something that you don't believe exists. It's, uh, you may need uh, medication. But at the end of the road, that's, that's what it is. It's a rejection of the godness of God. It's saying, yeah, God, you exist, but I don't want you to be powerful. I don't want you to be all-knowing. I don't want you to be sovereign. I don't want you to have jurisdiction and authority. It's a rejection of the godness of God. Idolatry spits on the moral authority and infallibility of God, and instead it insists on autonomy. Autonomy meaning knowing and determining good and evil on one's own terms. That's Genesis 3.5, the problem in the garden. So idolatry is the dethroning of God, and it's the enthronement of creation. Idolatry is the dethronement of God, and the exaltation, the enthronement of creation. That's exactly what Paul says in Romans chapter 1. Idolatrous living longs to limit God's sovereignty, reduce God's authority, and eliminate God's commands. 
Idolatry longs to limit God's sovereignty, reduce God's authority, and eliminate God's commands. The distinction between creator and creation becomes blurred as men seek to essentially divinize themselves. See, once you adopt these presuppositions, you then adopt what's called the Hegelian, Hegel was a German philosopher, the Hegelian dialectic. Dialectics pertains to metaphysical conundrums, the, you know, nature, grace, all these different dialectics of faith and science, the things that we kind of create, problems essentially that we create in the world. But what Hegel essentially taught was that collectivism is the best answer. You can't really figure it all out, so just collectivize everything. And that simply means um, that at the state level, that's considered in, he in Hegel's mind the best expression of humanity. Just raw power at a state government le level. Um, we're all too dumb to govern ourselves, so we have to have somebody do it for us. And that, that's the end conclusion of a non-biblical dialectic. And that's, uh, that's getting into some other issues, but we don't have time. When the heart is teeming with a desire to be as God, the image of God in man is defaced and deformed. When the heart is teeming with a desire to be as God, the image of God in man is defaced and deformed. Gods other than Yahweh are all human constructs. We are the ones who are stuck with their tyranny in the end. We clean up the garbage that they leave behind. We have to... Uh, we have to pay the debts that they incur, of course, and we have to suffer through their incompetence. At the end of the day, the idols we craft on our own volition are as destructive and fickle as we are. And why? Because we're the ones that made them. If you want to elevate yourself and create a God, it's going to be as silly and stupid as you are, as I am. It's always how it goes, because they're mirrors, they're reflections of our glory, which is puny in comparison to the glory of God. And since we made them, here's the other implication, they too are as susceptible to death as, as we are. When we perish, our idols perish. Uh, one writer said this brilliantly, I love this phrase, he said, history is the graveyard of the gods. History is the graveyard of the gods. Some men will go to their graves clutching their idols. Some men will do that. Some women will do that. They will go to their graves clutching, clutching their idols. But how are we supposed to know that if we violated the first commandment? Good question. How are we supposed to know that we violated the first commandment? How might we discern whether or not we have constructed an idol in our hearts, a God that sits before the face of Yahweh? How are we supposed to know that? And this is where things are going to start to hit home. So I'm going to get a little personal um, and step on your toes. So I hope you were prepared. First, if you're violating the other nine commandments, just know you've already violated the first. Okay? If you've hated your brother, that's murder in your heart. You've already You've become an idol. You've, you've already violated the first commandment. Okay? Uh, it's, it's not just committing adultery. It's looking lustfully in your heart, Jesus said. Jesus ups the ante. He says the commands are actually about the, what's going on inside, not just whether you've done this, that, or the other. Okay, so if you violated the other nine, you've already broken the first. It's gone. James says if you've broken one, you've broken them all. And that's because everything hinges on 
the first commandment. It can be sins of omission, not doing what God requires. You're not praying, you're not in the word, you're not leading your family men the way you're supposed to do. Uh, women, you're not, you're not building the home you're supposed to do. You're, you're, it could be sins of omission. You're just omitting something. You're, you're failing to do some things. Or it could be sins of commission, sins that we, something, doing something that God forbids. And that part is pretty straightforward. Second, naming false gods is not as difficult as it might seem. There are several categories to consider, and we'll start by asking, asking a question. What are the things you want? You want to get to the heart of idolatry? What are the things you want? Sometimes we want things like sexual sin, power, control, money. But wanting to make money, for example, in and of itself, isn't inherent, inherently sinful. Um, building wealth should be a good thing. We want to build wealth for our, our grandkids and their kids and their kids, uh, uh, build a social order that reflects God, um, using wealth, to, whether that's build private schools that emphasize uh, um, the, you know, the Bible, the Christian worldview, and so on. Um, we we want to build wealth. Money is not inherently evil. Many people misquote what Paul says in his letter to Timothy. Um, it's the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. <laughs> it's not the love of money generally. It's the love of money is at the root of all types of evil. Follow the money sort of thing. So money in and of itself isn't a big deal. But the question is, why do you want to make the money? Now you're starting to get into your mind. Why do you want to make the money? So others will be impressed with you? So you can put your trust in it? That's how you locate the idol. What do you want and why do you want it? Another idol can be found in the things that we need. Jesus said in Matthew 6, Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. See, there's a way to need things that honors God, and there's a way to need things that dishonors God. Pagans need things too, and they're willing to steal to get it. But what does the woman do who is trusting God in her needs? What is the woman doing who is trusting God in all of her needs? What is she doing? She knows that the Father knows, and she trusts Him. See, a lot of times in our needs, we don't think God knows. And we act like God doesn't know. So we pursue it, and we're willing to cut corners. We're willing to cheat. We're willing to compromise on the things that we need. So don't act like God doesn't know. Jesus says, don't be anxious. By the way, that's where anxiety ends up coming from. A lot of you struggle with anxiety because some of you maybe, I don't know personally, I'm just saying like people generally will struggle with anxiety because they don't realize that God already knows and they've forgotten that he knows so they don't know how to trust in him because he knows what you need. That's why I think Jesus makes the connection to anxiety and your needs. Idolatry also creeps in when we begin to see those needs in, in an end, as an end in themselves. Um, deifying these sources inherently means turning your back on God. In places like Psalm 65 and Psalm 104, we see that basic human needs come from God and God alone. And acknowledging God and God alone as the great giver of those needs is the biblical way to worship Him and not engage in idolatry. Know where your stuff comes from and appreciate where your stuff comes from. One of my favorite verses, Paul tells us, what, if, what do you have that you have not received? And the answer is nothing. Nothing. You've been given everything. And you say, well, yeah, 
I mean, I work really hard to get that car, and yeah, yeah, but who, who gave you the breath in your lungs and, the, and the, the beating heart to get you to that point? It's all God's. See, Deuteronomy 8 is a great reminder. You can read that later if you want. I, I would encourage you to. Deuteronomy 8 is a great reminder that God does provide food, water, clothing, and so forth. And if we don't remember him, if we don't remember him, he says in Deuteronomy 8, that he will bring judgment against his people. Ezekiel 29.3 warns us, Speak and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, the great dragon that lies in the midst of his streams, that says, My Nile is my own. I made it for myself. Interesting text that Ezekiel has for us. Here, Pharaoh's folly is on display. He thinks the Nile River that provided so much for Egyptian culture so much for the people of Egypt. He thinks it's his own creation. I made the Nile River. It's mine. That's an idolatry. See, idols also can be located when we consider the things that we attach our trust and fidelity to. Idols can be located in the things that we attach our trust and our fidelity to. Promises made or implied can entice us to trust in something other than God. Oftentimes, we sacrifice for them and then demand something in return when we don't get it. Okay? It doesn't matter what it is, sexual sin, any form of, of covetousness, um, any of those things. We often demand so much from them, but they can't give it to us. We demand a lot. Um, and this is because idols always overpromise and they always underdeliver. They always overpromise and they always underdeliver. There is no money back guarantee. And by the way, idolatry has an interest rate that is through the roof. Far worse than the Federal Reserve. See, the best, best uh, example I can think of right now is the idolatry of Big Pharma. Instead of crying out to God from the very beginning of this whole nonsense we've walked through for two years now, um, instead of... <laughs> Instead of crying out to God, we cried out to Fauci and Pfizer, trusting them to deliver from our perceived deliver us from our perceived plight. See, because men put their trust in something other than God, they are tempted to elevate the human condition to immorality, immortality. Here's what I mean. Let me say it another way. What they really want, what people really want, is a vaccine to deliver them from the ultimate judgment from God. That is death itself. That's what they want. That's what they're after. Some people may be scared of death, so they think it's their only way out. But ultimately, they want to transcend their own humanity. When our faith is placed in the fragile hands of an idol, we rely on them to deliver us and rescue us from the perceived threat of Father God. And we know from Scripture that escaping the judgment of God is an impossibility. Hebrews 9.27, you've heard it before. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Man dies once, man is judged. Now, when putting our trust elsewhere, we usually do so because of something we fear. We usually put our trust elsewhere because of something that we fear. Psalm 96.4 reads, For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. See, the assumption is, we either fear and revere Yahweh above all, or we will fear something else, elevating the idol above God. And oftentimes this works, um, 
in concert with the things that we find enticing. So we are enticed by majesty. We're enticed by majesty. We're enticed by strength. We're enticed by glory. That's just, that's the selfie generation. They're enticed by that. And if it isn't rooted in the majesty and strength and glory of God, what will we do? We will place those characteristics on something else, like an idol. And when we do... And oftentimes we don't revere God because we're enticed by idols. Some things entice us. They look good to us. Again, look at our current situation. We believe ourselves to be genuinely free. All right? I don't know if you've been following what's going on in Australia, but they've decided to become 1940s Germany. Um, it's, it's absolute insanity. It's just insane. There's no other word that fits it. Draconian doesn't even begin to scratch the surface. But we, we think ourselves to be genuinely free and able to do as we please, you know, free of risk and harm and so on. We always pray for safety. Why is it we pray for safety? Why don't we pray for tenacity? Why don't we pray for courage and boldness? It's always, it's always safety, kind of the cult of safety thing. But yet, we're also, we know, a very unhealthy culture with rampant toxicity in our food and our and our air, and our water, and so on. And on top of that, we're being controlled by elitists who keep telling us to stay home. That's sort of the situation we're in. We're consumed oftentimes in our culture by anxiety and depression with no end in sight. And this is because probably one of the most important principles we find in Scripture when it comes to idolatry is because we fear man more than we fear God. Now, we need to come back to the commandment itself. That's just sort of a survey of idolatry in the Bible. The command itself, you shall not place any gods in the sight of Yahweh. You shall have no other gods before him. There are three things I want to consider, and all three things are implied with the command itself. They are, one, authority. Authority is the first one. The second is power. Authority, power, and third is law. Those three things are all implied here. When it comes to the exclusive claim of Yahweh, Israel was to understand that their father has total jurisdiction, and thus he requires total allegiance. Total, um, Total jurisdiction requires total allegiance. That jurisdiction is expressed in those three things, authority, power, and law. And here's what I mean. Think of it in terms of authority. When it comes to authority, what is God saying in the first commandment? He's saying he has all of it. God has all of it. The assumption of the prologue of verses 1 and 2 is uh, that Yahweh has complete jurisdiction and right to command whatever he wishes, as well as exercise total dominion however he sees fit. Do you think it was hard for God to open up the Red Sea, get his son through, and then close it on Pharaoh? Was that hard? Not hard. But God has the right to exercise his dominion however he sees fit. And that was an exercise of dominion. If anything was, that was it, right? So to exercise authority is to exercise the rights as an author or a creator. Even our word author and authority, kind of uh, same root, root words. Between, God, um, between God's revelational activities of, of bringing Israel out of slavery and the whole drama of the Exodus... And his commands in the giving of the law, we can conclude that Yahweh's authority outstrips man's authority. 
The triune God is the source of all authority and, catch this, because this is confusing, as Chris referenced earlier to many Christians, any subordinate authority that he has established, whether it's in the home, in the church, or in the state, must acknowledge that it has derivative authority that must be exercised in terms of God and his law word. God has all authority. He has put authorities in place. And those authorities have to acknowledge the, that it comes from God, and they have to abide by that which God says. So to attempt to usurp God's authority is suicide. Therefore, you shall have no other gods. That's authority. Second one is power. Regarding power, which is, again, sort of interconnected with authority, we readily acknowledge as Christians that that is a religious idea. Power does not belong to Satan. It does not belong to Molech. It does not belong to the idols. Power is God's. It is His. In issuing this command to His Son, Yahweh, the warrior father, declares His absolute and unending power. So in one sense, power simply refers to the ability to affect change. When you think of power, some of you think, you know, big diesel engines or, or, or uh, you know, 12 horses pulling a carriage sort of thing. We think of power. But, and that's part of it, too. It's also the expending of energy to achieve a goal. That's power. We know that. But in terms of Yahweh's power, God's power, the Bible emphasizes that he has all authority and power, meaning that not only is the world his jurisdiction, that's authority, not only is it the world his jurisdiction, he actively works in the world, too. That's his power. And he works to bring about the manifestation of his glory. So know this, though, that power is not inherently negative, so, I mean, we, we think power should be exercised in godly ways. It's not inherently negative, but it has to reflect God. We should all have power and strength in living in obedience to God. Lastly, the third thing there was law. Authority, power, law. Yahweh asserts that his law takes priority over man's law. It is God's law, God's pattern of righteous behavior that is true and abiding. It is the standard of righteousness and justice that must mark God's image bearers. Men will always try to usurp God's authority and God's power, but the way that they do it is by attacking his law. The way to get rid of God's authority and get rid of God's power, the way they go about it is by trying to get rid of his law first. And why? I have a theory. I think it's because God's law is made manifest in history through the preaching of the gospel and the obedience of the, faith, uh, of the saints. When that's manifested, that is tangible evidence of God's authority and God's power. So why not go after his law? So what do you do? You start making up genders. So what do you do? You, you start making sure the state has more and more power. That's how you attack God and his law. See, when we, when we live in obedience to God and his word, we are challenging the idols. To obey King Jesus is to inherently topple and trash the idols that we find in the public square. And it's meant to be that way, by the way. This is where Christians, pietist Christians, who don't get the connection, really err. If you're not trampling the idols that you see out in the culture, you're actually not obeying King Jesus. If you're not actively trampling the idols, you're not obeying King Jesus. See, idolatry is inherently polytheistic. I mean, the word means, kids, polytheistic means many gods, right? Idolatry is polytheistic inherently. And that's because 
a soul-fixed word like God and his word would demand total conformity. If you have one God and one fixed word, one standard of righteousness and justice, it demands total conformity. There's no, you know, don't have any other gods, at least not on Sunday. There's no, there's no compromise. It's just what it is. It's the standard. It's perfect. And you're either adhering to the standard or you're not. But idolatry is polytheistic because it hates that fact. It hates the fact that there's one standard. God's law is that fixed standard, that fixed word. And rather than objectivity, idols will always leave you hemming and hawing, swaying between two or more opinions. You know, I know I shouldn't do this sin, but, you know, I feel like the, in, in Chris's words, the juice is worth the squeeze. I feel like I could, you know, I could look at this and I could do this or I could think that or I could say this and it's probably going to be fine. We sort of hem and haw back and forth with divided hearts. See, idols want you dazed and confused so you won't challenge their authority, power, and law. They want you dazed and confused. And that's why you inevitably become dumb, like what Psalm 115 says. You don't know what to do, so you don't do anything. You just sit and you wallow and you disintegrate into the void. That's what idolatry leads you to. But this is not to be so with the people of God. We have a better mediator than the Israelites did in the desert. We have Jesus, not Moses. We need Jesus, and, and Moses had his, his purpose, but Jesus is outshined him. That's what Hebrews tells us. It is Christ who topples the idols that we manufacture in our hearts and mind. It is Jesus who obeys the Father, putting no gods before him. So the point is, you're in Christ, you're in the covenant, act like it. You're in the covenant, so act like it. Believe on the gospel. Trust in Christ and his sufficient redemption. Trash the idols, breaking them with the hammer of God's word. That's what Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 23, 29. I love what Peter Lightheart said. He said, in Christ, the first word isn't mere, a mere prohibition. It's a call to arms. See, the Spirit has now taken up residence inside of you, Christian, and he does not tolerate divided allegiances. Jesus is Joshua. Uh, if you recall our study of Hebrews many years ago, Jesus is Joshua, and we follow him as he conquers the nations with the power of the gospel. And that power of the gospel is the sword that crushes, the sword that heals. And we've been liberated from sin in order to keep that law, to not have any idols and gods before him. And may the church be militant, militant in our labor to rid the land of idolatry. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your word is true and good and righteous we thank you thank you that you have given it to us for us to be able to discern it by your spirit's power and and father as we study these 10 words i pray that you would challenge us to trash those idols we know that if we can get the first commandment down right the rest will fall into place so help us to do just that help us to surrender everything in our lives lord help us to do what the the confession, the, the catechism tells us about thinking and, and um, mediating and meditating on you, remembering you, esteeming you, and honoring and adoring and choosing and loving and desiring and fearing you. Help us to believe and trust and delight and rejoice in you, to be zealous, to call upon you, to give all praise and thanks, and yielding all obedience and submission to you. Lord, would you give us that power and, and that strength? It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.